Welcome to the AAP Board Review Podcast, which is the podcast reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. I'm Dr. Nushad Mamoon, a physical medicine and rehabilitation resident at Memorial Healthcare System in Hollywood, Florida. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Gill, also a PM&R resident at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. We want this podcast to be a high-yield, audible study aid. In today's episode, our focus will be on headaches and facial pain syndromes. Special thanks to Dr. Mikey Blaya and Dr. Adnan Sube for reviewing this episode. Disclaimer, the AAP Board Review Series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the hosts and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. Content for the series is based off of current PM&R learning materials and is created by residents for residents. It is not an official board review study guide. A 44-year-old female with a history of multiple sclerosis presents to our clinic complaining of intermittent left-sided jaw pain that occurs suddenly, lasting for about one to two minutes at a time, which initially began about two months ago. She describes the pain as a sharp, stabbing, and shooting sensation that travels down her left jaw region, rated at an 8 out of 10 and can be debilitating at times. She denies any headaches, any pain radiating down to her neck, difficulty swallowing, or any fevers. Pain is often triggered when she is chewing gum or food. She also states light touch over the area can cause significant pain and often avoids turning on the AC in the car since even the air can be sensitive. She has tried using ibuprofen and Tylenol without much improvement in the frequency or intensity of these attacks. What would be your differential diagnosis in this case, Ben? It sounds somewhat like a facial pain syndrome, more specifically in the lower third of the face. If I had to further narrow it down, presentation affecting the V3 distribution of the trigeminal nerve. My top differentials include trigeminal neuralgia, temporal mandibular joint syndrome, and dental-related pain. Those are great differentials. Can you go into detail for why you chose them? Of course. So I would put trigeminal neuralgia at the top of my differentials since the pain sounds neuropathic in nature and the location of the pain itself tells me it may be in one of the three nerve distributions of the trigeminal nerve, likely the mandibular distribution from your description. Furthermore, you already stated the patient has multiple sclerosis and there's a link between trigeminal nerve pathology and this disease. Excellent points. What about why you chose TMJ syndrome? Well, I thought of temporal mandibular joint syndrome or TMS or TMJS as a possible cause since that joint is located anterior to the ear. Patients with this pathology will often note pain at the angle of the mandible. The presentation may be unilateral or bilateral. What features or absence of features rather in our patient would make temporal mandibular joint syndrome less likely, do you think? What makes me think that it is not TMJ syndrome is that the pain caused by TMJ is usually more persistent with some waxing and waning qualities, such as with eating or chewing. There's a radiating quality that can go to the periorbital region and has been reported to go to the ears, temporal, mandibular, and neck regions as well. Trigeminal neuralgia, on the other hand, would not affect the neck. TMJ oftentimes will have arthritic signs such as joint swelling and pain with palpation in that area. Okay, and for the dental-related pain as a cause? Dental etiology cannot be overlooked in any facial pain syndrome. This may include cracked teeth, cavities, or dental root abscesses. However, 
Dental-related pain would usually present with constant, dull, and throbbing characteristics, often localized in the intraoral region with possible radiation to the jaw. Great thought. I agree with you completely. It would be conducive to dig further into the patient's dental hygiene history. Absolutely. Analyzing the differential in this case, was the patient diagnosed with trigeminal neuralgia? Yeah, so this patient likely has trigeminal neuralgia. And to add to the dental-related pain, sadly, patients with trigeminal neuralgia have unnecessary tooth extractions due to high incidences of misdiagnosis. Diagnosis is typically clinical. A key feature to look for is paroxysmal pain. In other words, sudden onset pain with transient duration after a triggering action or events such as eating or chewing, which often leads to avoidance even in talking. The history usually needs to have the characteristic onset and termination during the pain episode. Anatomically, the trigeminal sensory ganglion sits anteriorly to the ear, where the three main branches originate. V1, V2, V3. The pain usually distributes along one to three of the trigeminal nerve distributions. These are the ophthalmic, maxillary, and mandibular divisions of the trigeminal nerve. Which distributions are most affected? The most affected distribution is the mandibular, followed by the maxillary branch. Pain in the ophthalmic branch has been reported, but is less common. It is rare for all three distributions to be affected at the same time. It is usually the mandibular or a combination of the mandibular and maxillary distributions. How do we manage patients with acute exacerbations of trigeminal neuralgia? Unfortunately, there is no efficacious pharmacologic option to manage acute exacerbations. Opioids should be avoided in managing this condition. There have been some reports of some short-term relief after lidocaine injections into the triggering regions. And anything for the long-term management to avoid attacks? Yes, absolutely. So carbamazepine and oxcarbamazepine are first-line medications approved for long-term trigeminal neuralgia. These are anti-epileptics that inhibit voltage-gated sodium channels. There's a very good review study discussing the pharma, uh, pharmacologic options to treat trigeminal neuralgia, showing that oxcarbamazepine had equal efficacy in reducing pain attacks, although with better tolerability and less side effects in comparison to carbamazepine. But if one of the two isn't effective for a patient, usually you can try the other and assess for improvement. There are other pharmacologic options for trigeminal neuralgia, although with less robust evidence, to name a few, these are gabapentin, Lyrica, muscle relaxers, uh, botulinum toxin, baclofen, and topiramate. Are there interventional or surgical options for this condition? Yes, absolutely. Some studies demonstrate similar outcomes between microvascular decompression or ablation. These may be considered with persistent trigeminal neuralgia. Microvascular decompression does require MRI with contrast and MRA of the brain, for confirmation of neurovascular compression of the trigeminal nerve. There is also the option of percutaneous radiofrequency ablation or percutaneous rhizotomy in refractory cases to essentially damage the sensory nerve fibers altogether. The downside of this will be the increased risk of causing facial numbness, but the pain is so unbearable that patients often still choose to undergo this procedure. Let's move on to case two. 
A 40-year-old female presents with right-sided throbbing headaches that radiate from the forehead to the back of the head. She is affected by these headaches 10 to 12 days per month, with episodes lasting around 6 to 7 hours per day. She denies traumatic events such as car accidents, falls, or head trauma. She occasionally sees subtle stars in her vision 30 minutes prior to the onset of headaches. Acetaminophen and ibuprofen have provided variable improvement in symptoms. Her headaches have progressed in frequency and intensity over the past year. Recently, she notes needing to close her blinds in her home. She has been missing work more often due to the headaches. Imaging performed in the ED was negative for acute pathology. The patient denies other significant medical conditions. What are your differentials? Headaches can be so debilitating. My differential diagnosis for a patient with this presentation would include migraine headaches, cluster headaches, occipital neuralgia, and tension headaches. I would also want to assess and rule out if this is a secondary headache to something more dangerous going on underlying. Nice list. Can you discuss your differentials for why you thought of them? Absolutely. So migraine headaches is the most likely diagnosis in this case for me. The headaches are unilateral and occur quite frequently each month. She has dealt with these for a long time, although notes recent increase in frequency. Her report of temporary vision change prior to onset of headaches is a key feature for an aura that may be seen with migraines. I agree. The aura is a big clue for the patient suffering with migraine headaches. What are auras exactly? Auras include any focal neurological deficit that precede migraine symptoms. Typically, auras are unilateral. They may become a trend that provides the patient with premonition of impending migraine. Can you tell me more about cluster headaches in your differential? Cluster headaches are also part of the differential since these headaches are typically one-sided as well. Otherwise, there are many other characteristics within the realm of cluster headaches that make it less likely in this presentation. Cluster headaches are severe, unilateral, which occur at the posterior orbital or supraorbital region with associated temporal radiation as well. Patients can also have associated forehead and facial sweating, eyelid edema, lacrimation, and conjunctival injection. They often improve with supplemental oxygenation, but it's not 100% efficacious. There are published literature that there is efficacy in injectables such as galcanizumab that help reduce the frequency of these attacks. Very interesting and great description. What about occipital neuralgia? Occipital neuralgia is considered a secondary headache disorder which affects the posterior upper neck and posterior head region. The pain syndrome originates from an underlying compression of occipital nerves or cervical pathologies such as cervical facet arthropathy. Why is it on your differential list? Although I'd say we would have a low suspicion for occipital neuralgia with this patient, it is good to consider with the unilateral presentation in our case. The greater, lesser, and third occipital nerves may be affected, and pain may sometimes radiate to the temple. Presentation is usually paroxysmal and stabbing in nature, which may be reproduced on physical exam when palpating tender regions on the posterior occiput region. Great. Lastly, can you tell us more about tension headaches? Yes. Um, tension headaches are the most diagnosed headache disorder. Location is usually a band-like formation at the forehead region and posterior occipital region. What would make tension headaches unlikely in this patient's case? Tension headaches are bilateral, with a tightening or pressing quality without being pulsatile. Also, tension headaches do not have associated features like migraine headaches do. 
They are usually mild to moderate in intensity and is not associated with nausea or vomiting. Overall, I think this patient's presentation is most consistent with migraine headaches. Yes, I'd say that the patient has migraine headaches. Migraine headaches are quite prevalent in the United States, overall affecting about 12% of the population, with a greater prevalence among women than men. As migraine attacks can be extremely debilitating, second most leading cause in the U.S. in particular, they are also a common reason for emergency visits. What's the etiology of migraine headaches, Ben? The true etiology of migraine headaches is not really fully understood. However, in recent decades, we're discovering that CGRP, or calcitonin gene-related peptide, plays an important role. How do we know CGRP plays an important role, Ben? Well, there has been published literature discussing that CGRP is released during acute migraine attacks and subsequent normalization of these levels in migraine patients after sumatriptan treatment. There was also evidence of CGRP having a causative role in migraines from a study showing IV provocation with CGRP-induced migraine-like attacks in migraine patients. Treatment for migraines have largely turned its attention towards targeting this, which we will talk about soon. It involves neuronal hyperexcitability and activation of the trigeminal vascular pathway. CGRP molecules and receptors are expressed in this pathway, as well as in the peripheral and central nervous systems. Vasoconstriction and vasodilation of the cranial meningeal blood vessels occur, which cause irritation and release of various neuropeptides, leading to inflammation, edema, and pain. What is the clinical picture for patients with migraine headaches? Our case presentation is a classical instance of migraines, but there is a spectrum of various migraine subtypes. It's common to experience associated features such as photophobia, phonophobia, and nausea or vomiting. The headaches are unilateral, pulsating in quality, and typically aggravated by various physical activity like walking or climbing stairs. Patients often report moving less or having activity avoidance in fear of worsening their pain. Function may be greatly impaired by migraines from its disabling intensity. That makes a lot of sense. I know migraine headaches are a large subject with various clinical presentations like migraine with auras or without auras. Are there any non-pharmacologic alleviating measures patients take for migraine headaches? Yes. Since many patients have photophobia and phonophobia, many will report improvement in a dark, quiet room. Some may take a nap with improvement in symptoms, severity, or resolution of the migraine attack. What are reasons a physician would recommend emergency visits or pursue neuroimaging with migraines? Well, that's a fantastic question. To set it into perspective, 90 to 95% of the time, headaches are usually benign. But some headaches can be secondary headaches due to underlying etiology that could potentially be life-threatening. As clinicians, we must verify that we are not dealing with potentially life-threatening headaches. The acronym SNOOP helps us recall red flag symptoms, which may trigger the need for imaging. So that's S-N-O-O-P. S is for systemic signs or symptoms and secondary risk factors. We need to inquire about fevers, chills, night sweats, myalgias, and weight loss. Further screening should also include consideration of malignancy history, HIV status, or other immunosuppression. N is for neurologic changes. This includes focal or global symptoms, such as behavior or personality changes, diplopia, frequent visual obscurations, pulsatile tinnitus, motor weakness, sensory loss, or ataxia. O is onset of symptoms, 
This reminds us of abnormal migraine characteristics such as rapidly onset headache, reaching peak intensity within one to two minutes, or the classic thunderclap headache, which may herald a subdural hemorrhage. This would, of course, warrant emergent cranial imaging. O is for older or greater than 50 years of age. MP is position-dependent, pattern changes of the headache, papilledema, and pregnancy. Position dependency may be worsening with Valsava maneuver. Patterns include abnormal switch from typical migraines in the frequency or characteristics. Papilledema may indicate increased intracranial pressure. Pregnancy also increases concern. That was very informative. I love the simple acronym to help guide our clinical judgment. So I just want to review for myself. So SNOOP, S-N-O-O-P, S for systemic signs and secondary risk factors, and for neurologic changes or signs. The first O for onset of symptoms such as thunderclap pattern. Second O for older age or greater than 50 years of age. P is for positional change, pattern changes, papilledema, and pregnancy. One of these findings will be a good indicator to order neuroimaging to roll out other more dangerous causes. Got it. How would we manage patients with migraine headaches? Treatments are typically separated into a board of treatments for acute migraine attacks and prophylactic treatments to reduce frequency of future episodes. A board of treatments often start with NSAIDs, such as ibuprofen or naproxen. These are usually more effective in patients not experiencing associated features, such as nausea or vomiting. Oral tryptans, such as sumatriptan, may be used. Some reports indicate a greater efficacy when these are used in conjunction with NSAIDs. Antiemetics and oral steroids are beneficial as well. And over the last five years especially, there's been an explosion of pharmacological therapies targeting CGRP molecules or receptors. Patients persistently affected by migraines may be prescribed CGRP, again, calcitonin gene-related peptide antagonists. These FDA-approved medications may help with acute attacks or in prophylactic management. They are typically administered subcutaneously or IV on a monthly or quarterly basis, depending on the specific formulation. Very interesting. How do they work? These headaches are selective antibodies that either bind to CGRP molecules or receptors. Like mentioned before, CGRP is one of the more studied neuropeptides that is released in the pathway of migraine headache onset. So, the idea is inhibition of these to reduce the frequency of migraine headache attacks in the future. I also believe there is a subclass of CGRP receptor antagonists called small molecule CGRP receptor antagonists, or GPANTS, which have also been approved for acute attacks and preventative management, which can also be taken orally. That is correct. Another option for patients. Any forms of more invasive treatment for abortive purposes? Yes. Occipital plexus and sphenopalatine ganglion blocks may be performed in office settings for abortive treatment. There are also non-invasive neuromodulation devices approved for migraines, such as transcutaneous supraorbital nerve stimulators, single-pulse transcranial magnetic stimulation, or a STMS, and non-invasive vagal nerve stimulation, or NVNS, and remote electrical neurostimulation, or REN. These are typically used for migraine prevention. What about preventative treatment? When is it typically appropriate to prescribe preventative medications for these patients? Depending on chronicity and or the frequency of migraine headaches patients are experiencing, headache specialists will determine the need for preventative pharmacological regimen in a case-by-case basis. So, 
CGRP receptor or molecule antagonists have really become a focal point for preventative measures, but other common agents that have been used prior to the new popularity of CGRP antagonists are beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, and of course, we can't fail to mention things like botulinum toxin injections. Are you ready for a lightning round? Yes, I'm ready. True or false? The best way to manage trigeminal neuralgia painful attacks is with oral opioids. That is false. Opioids in general have not been reported to be helpful for managing trigeminal neuralgia acute attacks. Some report lidocaine injections in triggering areas as potentially beneficial to variably improve the intensity of the pain during the acute episode. What is an example of a medication that may be used for both acute and preventative management? DGRP antagonists would be a good option for this. Exactly right. What are the three branches of the trigeminal nerve? The three branches of the trigeminal nerve are the ophthalmic, maxillary, and mandibular branches. Yes. What is the first-line treatment for cluster headaches? That would be the supplemental oxygen therapy, which is used to abort cluster headaches. Correct. All right. What are your key takeaways from this episode? These are the few points I have that I want to remember. So number one, craniofacial pain syndromes must be dissected and diagnosed with careful histories and special analysis of the characterization and description of the pain and associated symptoms. Of course, this is in addition to a thorough and focused physical exam. Number two, like I said, Taking a very thorough uh, history for patients with headaches specifically will give you 95% of the needed information to give the clinician a strong suspicion for the diagnosis and classification of the headache type, thus allowing for a proper next step in management. Number three, that acronym SNOOP can help you identify need for the neuroimaging to be ordered to rule out life-threatening secondary headaches. Once again, these are S for systemic signs and for neurologic changes O for onset of symptoms, O for older than 50, P for pattern changes, papilledema, pregnancy, and positional worsening. Number four, trigeminal neuralgia is a paroxysmal facial pain disorder that usually affects the mandibular branch of the trigeminal nerve, less frequently the maxillary branch. It may be misdiagnosed as TMJ syndrome since the pain regions coincide. However, TMJ syndrome has more of a waxing and waning pattern. Number five, occipital neuralgia is a secondary headache disorder which affects the greater and lesser occipital nerves arising from the cervical vertebra, whether it is the compression of these nerves from trauma or cervical arthritic pathology. It is a paroxysmal pain syndrome that can be triggered upon palpation on the occiput and higher posterior neck region. Number six, migraine headaches are debilitating unilateral headaches with associated features such as photophobia phonophobia, nausea, and vomiting, which can last for hours and occur from a few days to more than 15 days a month. They can cause significant debility and poor quality of life. There are new and effective FDA-approved treatment options for, for patients with migraines that target the CGRP receptors and molecules, which is reshaping the management of migraines today. And lastly, headaches is such a large field that it has its own subspecialty in which there are headache specialists who care for patients with more complex refractory conditions. 
it is difficult to discuss all the types in this one episode, but hopefully this gave an adequate peek into the nature of these conditions. We will provide more information and resources to help care for your patients and guide them in the right direction. Great points. Thanks again for joining us today, Nishad. Ben, thank you so much for having me on on this episode. It was a great time to talk to you and have this discussion with you. Until next time. We hope you enjoyed this board review episode on craniofacial pain syndromes. If you thought this podcast was helpful, please share with others who may also value the content. Don't forget to follow the AAP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date on the latest news and opportunities. 